I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go to each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves and some so nearly balls. We have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are till our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side comes a little more. Greetings, this is Jim McGinnis and that was Robert Frost. This old Floridian has been pondering Robert Frost all day. The old New Englander has spent quite a while in Key West, so it's not as long a reach as you might think. Depression era Key West was a bit shabby and run down for Frost when he first visited, but he ended up spending 16 winters there, so something must have drawn him and held him. But he's something more than a seasonal visitor to the show. Welcome to Stories We Can Tell, a place for the thoughts and musings of this old Floridian, reflections on history, literature, and music, stories about individual journeys and struggles and victories. we do not need a wall he's all pine and I'm apple orchard my apple trees will never get across and eat cones under his pines I tell him he only says good fences make good neighbors before I built a wall I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense something there is that doesn't love a wall wants it down that poem was uh actually banned in the Soviet Union. You know, for a long time now, I've been absorbed, my wife's word, by politics and history. I've learned it, taught it, and wrote about it. Hell, I've got two degrees in it for crying out loud. Woo! But the more I know, the less I seem to understand. I think Don Henley said that first. political shit becomes like a pathless wood. I set down my prestigious degrees and pick up a book or turn on some music. But then I wade back in. I have to think that that's what democratic citizens have to do. As I've said before though, the political world can lose its humanity wars and depression, revolution and oppression, liberation and occupation, mass migrations and convulsions within or without. We often smother the lives of the individual. The events and conditions of the world can take on the appearance of some irresistible force resembling an earthquake, hurricane, tornado. People become statistics.
And by taking away one's identity, by objectifying a person, whether it's by design or by accident, we create a dangerous condition. It allows people to do terrible things to each other. Whether it's herding us into camps or reservations or exploding bombs in our marketplaces, whether it's denying accents and opportunity or robbing each other of dignity, these things are only possible when we forget our humanity. And we're all capable of such things. Hell, the longer I live, the more I learn, the less certain I am about things about the world and myself. I do know that before we act, before we make any decisions, we need to remember that we're all sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sisters and brothers, uncles and cousins. Those who serve and those we've lost aren't just statistics, such as it is with those who come here hoping for a better life like our ancestors. So, back to the pathless wood of politics, back to the middle of something. The contrarian, the activist, the loyal opposition, the Tea Party, the Occupy movement, the resistance in the underground, those who swim upstream and run against the wind, the agitator, and the pamphleteer. No matter what side they're on, they oppose wielders of a power and authority at every turn. And the very existence, their very existence, affirms the legitimacy of that authority. Their motives are rarely pure and never simple. They're driven by all sorts of things, political interests, selfless idealism, and even personal animosity. At times, the dissenter is a courageous and peaceful visionary. Other times, he's a thug. Still, the right to dissent is older than the republic itself, and its value is indispensable. In fact, it's largely responsible for America's birth. There have been questions about how far we should go with this fiery rhetoric. Now, I'm not saying that the government doesn't clamp down on criticism. Hell, sedition acts from John Adams to Woodrow Wilson were passed to silence those who spoke out in one form or another. Newspapers were closed and publishers were jailed. 20th century labor activist Eugene V. Debs famously uttered that rich men start the wars and poor men fight them, and he got a 10-year prison sentence. Alice Paul and over 30 of her fellow suffragists were arrested outside the White House and later beaten for, here, quote, obstructing sidewalk traffic doesn't end there, asked Dolores Huerta and the United Farm Workers. These are shameful examples, but they have bolstered our belief that a vigorous public discourse is necessary in a democracy, and that government has no business regulating dissent. 
but inevitably the question of good manners comes up. Courtesy and respect are essentials for a healthy civic life, and they seem to have skipped town. Therein lies the rub. Now actually, I'm fine with loud, crude debate, but I have to wonder, what's the goal, the end game? Is it to win, to grab power, to hold on to power? Or is it a struggle to regain some common sense in our approach to good government, to help those who, no fault of their own, through no fault of their own, must depend on us, as both Reagan and Roosevelt said. Not to blindly support wasteful programs and a runaway bureaucracy, but to find a way back to the center. This is where the president comes in. And one thing is for sure, he should stay out of the mud. We need our president to show us, even in the face of withering criticism, what it looks like to be respectful, tolerant, courteous, thick-skinned. And whether or not you like me saying it, it needs to be said. At the very least, our past leaders have served as standard bearers of civility. Sometimes that's all they're good for, but we have always held our presidents to higher standards of behavior than we hold ourselves. They have reminded us, inspired us, challenged us, and endeavored to unite us, to hold us together. In the public arena, I see trouble all over, but we can't silence or shout down speech we deem insensitive or crude, whether we agree with it or not. Let folks say that what they want to say, air it out. Trust human nature a little bit. It is what democracy is based upon. So let's knock off the righteous indignation. And then there are those of us who cherry pick social issues. And there are many who have chosen to excuse the president's belligerent behavior with the hopes that such boorishness is the only way they can overturn what they consider bad policies. For decades, we've heard them preach of values and principles. Where are those virtues today? I'm not going to speak for everybody in the middle, but among the people I know, we're not real crazy about the left or the right. Your attitudes, your arrogance, your self-righteousness. How about a little humility? In Congress, well, how about proving P.J. O'Rourke wrong? that you're just a parliament of whores. Get the money out of your hands. Give up your pensions and free health insurance. Embrace term limits. If you're gonna tend a bridge, get in the middle of it. That way, you go down with it. Burn with it, rot with it, whatever. The office of the president was once occupied by George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. As a history teacher, I have to remind my students every day that what they see and hear coming out of the White House, or out of the Capitol for that matter, is not acceptable behavior. My love for this country and its institutions is marrow deep, and I believe that the President is honor bound to protect the legacy of the statesmen who came before him. He sits where Reagan sat. Let him speak as Reagan spoke. 
for anyone to rationalize that bad manners and crude behavior are somehow necessary to achieve political solutions, well, that's ridiculous. Come on now. There was no simpler time, as David McCullough said, no easier time. There are no excuses. In a country where anything goes, everything eventually will. So let's draw the line. Regardless of how nasty the tone on political debate, the president must stay above it. As I said, we have traditionally held our president to a higher standard of behavior. Are we not all duty-bound to hold him to that standard? The president must remember that he represents all Americans, not just those who voted for him. Forgive me. This is usually where I rant about uh, our ignorance of and disdain for history. But I won't. Not today. I wonder, though, have we forgotten how to behave? Maybe. Take heart, my friends. When we look at the whole of Washington and shake our heads, we have endured leadership issues before, in both Congress and in the presidency. The scandals and personal excesses of U.S. Grant, the incompetence of Warren Harding, the abuses by, of power by Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton's blatant disrespect for the office with his personal behavior. The President of the United States is more than just the chief decision maker, much more. He is the visible and audible representation of the nation. His behavior matters. There were presidents such as Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Gerald Ford, and Ronald Reagan who, through far, though far from perfect, did much to bolster the integrity of the presidency and the administrations, their administrations, served to school us on the symbolic importance of leadership. More fiery debates are coming, folks, over violent crime, gun rights, terrorism, immigration, health care. They will be boisterous and unruly. That's the way it has always been in this republic. But we need our president to try to unite us. We need him to fulfill that role. I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to achieve solutions to our problems by any means necessary. Let's not burn the house down. We all live in it. John F. Kennedy expressed high hopes for the Republic. He said, I look forward to a great future for America, a future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint, its wealth with our wisdom, its power with our purpose. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, wants it down. I'm Jim McGinnis, Fair Winds. Thank you.